brace yourselves. Uh, get ready to take it like a man. Uh, roll up your sleeves, there's work to be done. Uh, these are all rough modern equivalents to the ancient phrase, gird up your loins. Essentially, it's a command to gather up your loose hanging robes and things uh, into a belt, tie it off, because you've got to run, you've got to go somewhere, and you can't just easily move around if you're in your long flowing robes. So you gird up your loins because there's work to be done. Now, we understand this phrase perhaps, but maybe we're surprised at its use in the book of Job. In chapters 1 and 2, the reader gets a glimpse into heaven, and from the outset we see what lies behind the sufferings of Job. It is the Lord who permits Satan to bring suffering into Job's life. And then from chapter 3 onwards, the camera pans down from heaven to earth, and for the next 35 chapters, we hear all these earthly opinions about the workings of heaven and why there's so much suffering. Job and his miserable comforters debate the whys and the wherefores of suffering. But suddenly, in Job chapter 38 verse 1, the Lord speaks to Job out of the storm. And he says, brace yourself like a man. In the old King James Version, gird up your loins like a man. And then he goes on in Job 38 verse 1 and then verse 2. He says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. You shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So... We're very surprised that in the middle of all this suffering, the Lord shows up and says, gird up your loins. We might not have been expecting that. And we certainly have not been expecting another four chapters of the Lord bringing this intense, unanswerable and relentless line of questioning. Is this how you thought the book of Job was going to pan out? A book all about a righteous sufferer, and at the end God shows up, and if we were writing the story, surely we would conclude things with, I don't know, Job and the Lord having a nice cup of tea, while the angels give the poor man a back rub and just say, there, there. Isn't that how we would write the story? But instead, Job gets this earth-shattering experience of the Lord Almighty. God shows up and says, gird up your loins, Job. Brace yourself. I'm going to confront you. And Job's eyes are dramatically lifted from himself and his own situation, and they are fixed instead on this warrior, this lord, this creator, this commander, who speaks from the midst of a tornado. Job experiences the Lord's incomparable wisdom in surround sound. After a heck of a lot of speeches in the book, the Lord has the last word, and Job is rendered speechless. You might call this putting Job in his place. And actually, actually, it is God putting Job in his place, but it is for Job's good. The whole point of these chapters, the whole point of all these rhetorical questions that the Lord brings, you know, did you make this world? Do you, do you know how it works? You know, all of this is to lift the burdens of deity from Job's shoulders. You see, whenever we try to balance the scales of sufferings and blessing in our lives, we put ourselves in the place of God. If, if we imagine that we can justify X amount of suffering because of Y amount of sin and because it will lead to Z amount of benefits, when we do that kind of double entry bookkeeping system, we are really overstepping our limitations as creatures. 
No, we must trust the Lord to redeem all evil. And we can trust to the Lord the redemption of all evil. He redeems evil, not via some abstract balancing act of of cost and benefits. He redeems the world through the cross and the resurrection. We cannot make sense of suffering by doing this double-entry accounting. If we do, we start to play God. And we better gird up our loins for His response. No, we leave the redemption of evil in the hands of our Redeemer. It's not our God to rationalize good and evil. Wasn't that Adam and Eve's original sin? Didn't they want to know good and evil for themselves, taking those terms into their own possession and being arbiters of them? No, that's not for us to do. In this book, Job asks God why he is suffering 20 times. He really wants to know reasons for his suffering, and that's completely understandable. It's it's completely understandable. It's totally human. We all do it. But Job never gets an answer to the why question. He never gets reasons. And that's deliberate. That's for Job's good. And it's for our good, too. In suffering, we think we want reasons. But if reasons were helpful, then God would give them to us. What God does give to Job and what he gives to us is not reasons, but a promise of redemption in the end and the revelation of himself in the mess. We've thought about the promises of redemption that Job has had. Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end I will see him. Or in Job chapter 23 verse 10, Job says, When God has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Job gets these promises of redemption, but he also gets an experiences, he gets an experience of his redeemer in the midst of the storms. We've thought about Job chapter 16, where he speaks about Christ as his witness, his advocate, his intercessor, his friend. That's an experience, a revelation of the Lord. But here in chapters 38 to 41, we see Job getting a mind-blowing experience of the Lord Almighty in the storm. Job has to gird his loins for this experience. But it is far better, it is far better to receive that revelation of God in the midst of suffering than to receive some kind of abstract rationalization for our suffering. In our storms, what do we want? Do we want reasons? Do we want God to somehow balance the books and say this amount of suffering was worth it because of this amount of blessing? Do, do we really want that? Do we want, do we want reasons or do we want the Redeemer in the midst of it all? If we've got our heads screwed on right, we will want the Redeemer. Reasons are not promised, not in this life. The Redeemer is promised. So in all your storms, gird up your loins, and pray to know Him.